last week as we were in 1 Kings 3, we looked at a young man's prayer, Solomon's prayer, and this young man was 20 years old at the time. Uh, and if you know of any 20-year-olds, sometimes their decision-making processes aren't always the greatest because we're very emotional-based, especially at that age. So we have a 20-year-old that's praying this prayer, and he's, you know, he, he's letting go and letting God control things. And, and I really got stuck there again this week, so I kind of revised the list as I looked down the, the four different things that we should really pray for, and we kind of challenged us to start praying this way to the Lord. Solomon had been king long enough to know how intimidating it was. Uh, anytime you're put in charge of something, sometimes you're sitting there, you're gung-ho, you're like, I can do this, and you get in the middle of it, and you're like, I can't do this. And that's what Solomon was, was doing. He was kind of in the middle, just overwhelmed. To, and he, he started to understand to, and to know that certain parts were just bigger than him. And, and he didn't just know how to do it, he was just overwhelmed. So Solomon is, is wise enough to go to the Lord, and he's sacrificing to the Lord, and he's worshiping in the Lord, and the Lord appears to him in a dream. And, and you have to be careful with dreams because they need to be confirmed, confirmed with Scripture, confirmed with, with other Christians, because, uh, you know, my wife tells me some of her dreams, they're just out there, I tell you, she has weird dreams, okay? Uh, my son has some that are hilarious, in a four-year-old mind. So we can get caught up of, oh, God gave me this dream. And it's just like, oh, oh, oh that totally goes 100% against Scripture. Did you know that? You know, So you can't say that's from God. Um, but, uh, but this one was from God. For Solomon it was very real and from God. And, and God tells Solomon, ask whatever you want to ask, and, and, and you'll get it. And we would all love that uh, uh, statement to come from God. And, and, and this is what we looked at last week. And, and we had eight things, and we narrowed it down to kind of four things to concentrate. And today, I, I kind of want to go back over it because I thought it was important because I was kind of stuck there this week. And, and a lot of times I don't try to go back and redo a lot of stuff that we've already talked about, but I thought it was important. Uh, so today I, I've expanded it to five. He says, you were good to my father, David. And it shows an appreciation for God's uh, relationship with those that came before him as he's praying to God and talking with God. And Solomon looks back at his mentors and, and appreciates them. And sometimes we have to go out and find our own mentor. If you don't have a mentor, you need to have one. You need to go out and search for one because there is someone there for you. And as you're looking, turn around and see who's following you because guess what? We all have someone following us. And that becomes, you know, I've always had um, students that I've, I've worked with and, you know, no matter what age I was working with, I've always had, you know, students and college students and, and adults following what I was doing. And now that I have a four-year-old at home and, you know, right as a baby, I mean, they follow you, don't they? If, you ha if you're a parent or been around kids, you understand. They watch every little thing. My wife keeps saying a certain thing a certain way and Brandon, man, he's picked up on it. He says it all the time. She, last night she just shook her head. She goes, I must say that all the time. Because Brandon says it. Kids, follow us. So we have to turn around and see who's following us. Because as people watch us, we have to remember we are mentoring them. First off, we're mentoring our children. We're investing in them. So don't forget about that. Solomon says to God, you were good to my father. You were gracious with my parents. And you have to really remember who Solomon is. He's the second child of David and Bathsheba. Think about this. Who was the first child? Does anybody know the first child's name? You shouldn't, because it's not in there. They never got a chance to name him. 
God took that child home because of the sin that they were involved in and said, your child is going to die. And, and that was kind of the, the punishment. I don't know why God chose to do it that way, but he did. So they never named him. It was a penalty for David's adulterous affair, a very evil affair, a very wrong relationship. Yet now, at this stage of the game, you know, David has passed away and Solomon is praying and he's recognizing that God blessed David. And we say, well, how could God bless David after that mess? I mean, he had a man killed. I mean, we look at our sin and we go, well, I'm not that bad. Because we all like to compare sin, right? And we've all thought about somebody. We'd like to kill somebody, right? We've all thought about that, right? Okay. God can choose to bless anything he chooses to. As long as we repent. And that is the key. David recognized what he did and he repented. God does not bless evil behavior. He never will. He never does. The world may bless it, but God does not. And you need to understand that. However, they repented and they moved into a godly relationship. So God blessed them with a son named Solomon. And if you look at Jesus' family tree, and you go back and, and study the, the beginning Matthew, you will be very surprised at the, some of the shenanigans of his relatives that they had to repent for. I mean, some of the stuff is just crazy. And praise the Lord that, that he has forgiven them and he forgives us. Because there's a few people in this room that can think they're lucky stars that God gives second chances, right? And some of us are going, second chances? How about third, fourth, fifth, and... 27th and 132nd and you know we could just keep going on and on when we repent to the Lord he gives us another chance Solomon was a product of God giving David a second chance and that's a beautiful thing so he says you were good to my father David and secondly he says you have chosen me you know you got to know that there was times when Solomon missed his dad I mean, miss the advice, miss the, 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 Dad, how do I handle the situation as king now that I'm here? I wish you were here, Dad. I wish I could ask you. He wanted David to advise him, but he wasn't there anymore. He had the Psalms. I mean, how cool would it have been, or weird, to know that your dad wrote a lot of the Psalms, wrote Scripture. And think about Solomon's kids. I mean, their dad wrote Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. Man, that's just weird. Uh, if you've ever read the Song of Solomon, you understand what I'm saying. But he's saying, you were good to my father, and now you have chosen me. So even though he is overwhelmed, even though he's going through this, he accepts the fact that God chose him. And he understands that he's part of a greater plan. In fact, if we look in the scripture, we, we go to verse 7 of 1 Kings 3. It says, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. He's saying, you are my God. You're not just my parents, God. You're not just, uh, not just, you know, my family's God. You are my God. And young people, you need to listen to me today. You are not just my parents' God, he says. You are my God. At an age of around 15 or 16, this statement, you know, makes a huge difference and starts to become relevant to you. Even if you accepted Christ at a young age, this becomes relevant to you. Because your parents, if they believe it in God, it doesn't matter if they believe in God. You have to choose that. 
You are not a Christian because your family is a Christian family. You are not a Christian because your parents follow God. You have to make that decision. In high school, you will have to decide whether you're going to follow the ways of the world, which are, what, your friends sometimes, the ways of the world, and do the things that your friends might pressure you into, or use the language, or joke the way they joke, or watch and look at the things that they watch and, and what the world does. And I thought it was kind of ironic that this past week you had 50 shades of gray on the, on the screens, and you had Spongebob. And unfortunately, at a drive-in that we used to go to, my wife and I, you go to the drive-in and you can kind of see both screens. They had SpongeBob and Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, yeah. And then another theater I read about, accidentally, accidentally, I'm sure it was some smart little kid that worked there, started Fifty Shades of Grey in the SpongeBob theater with all the parents trying to run out to cover their eyes of the kids. We have to choose when we get... Now, our parents go, no, let's get out of here. We're not watching that. But there comes a point when we have to choose. Am I going to watch that? Am I going to act like that? Am I going to talk like that? And then you get into college and you have the same decisions. You're a young adult, you have the same decision. When you have kids, you have the same decisions. And even where you work, you have to decide that. And guess what? Even when you retire, you have to ask that and deal with those decisions. It's a part of life. Am I going to live for the Lord or am I going to live for myself? That is a key question for all of us. And this is what Solomon is saying. He's saying, you are not just my parents' God. You are my God also. You are my God. And then thirdly, he says, I have chosen you. God, you have chosen me, and I have chosen you. Now, that's, it, it, what's really funny is, uh, about this is because religious people like to get together and discuss biblical things, which is really cool. I'm not knocking that. I think we ought to debate some of these things. But they really debate whether God chose us or we chose him. Romans 8, I think it is. And, and you know, is it pre, predestination or is it our, de- you know, all these different things and these big words that scholars like to believe. And, and some, some people won't even fellowship with each other based on whether God chose us or we chose God. The reality is both are true. Both are backed up by scripture within the Bible. We don't know exactly how it works, but they're both backed up, which means... God, you are in charge and not me. If I was in charge of my life, I'd be preaching on a beach in Hawaii right now. I wouldn't be here. I love you guys, but I'd say, come with me. But God has not chosen that. I'm not in charge. God has me here, and that's where I'm going to stay. But I'd be in Hawaii, believe me. If you know anything about me, you would know that. Number four, I don't know how to do this overwhelming uh, job, he prays. I've been given the assignment, and I just don't know what to do. I'm convinced that you are not in God's will in your life if there's something that you're not uncomfortable about, uh, uncomfortable about in your life. If you're totally 100% comfortable, you are not being stretched by God, and therefore, you are not in God's will. That is my belief, and I think that's backed up by Scripture. If the majority of the time you got things under control, then you need to maybe reevaluate where you are in life. Now, we do go through, let me, as a caveat here, we do go, do go through periods of peace in our life where God blesses us with, with great peace and things go well. I'm not talking about that. 
But I'm talking about in our spiritual relationship. If God is not stretching us, then maybe we've taken, you know, a time out. Maybe we've been sitting on the bench a little too long. And then number five, it says, so give me the heart, give me the wisdom, and give me the knowledge that I need in order to do this. This prayer is a great prayer. Whether leading a huge corporation, which I don't know if we have anybody here that leads a big corporation, but your own business or something, or a small group, or a Bible study, or even your family. We have to let go and let God, and it begins with the type of prayers like Solomon does. When we are overwhelmed, we have to let go, because God's Spirit can become active at that point, and He will give us the ability and the power, things that we do not have, did you know we have access to, you know, access and ability to, to abilities and powers that, that others don't? I mean, we got this huge tool chest of things that we can go to the God and, and go ask God for things, yet we don't. We don't. I don't know about you, but since there's been power drills around, I don't like screwing in a screw in a wall. I built my shed in the backyard. Uh, uh, my brother-in-law came out, and we put it all together and stuff. And I tell you, there's the bottom platform. We had to hammer in because of the angle. We couldn't get the staple, I mean the staple gun, the, the nail gun in there and all that. And they, we had to hammer it in. The whole stinking thing. By the end of the day, I mean, I'm like, my hand is just like drooping. I like power tools. You know what I'm saying? We have power that we can have access to. It'd be like me building the rest of the shed and leaving my power tools in there let's go back to the 1800s or let's go back to to you know the the dark ages and where we don't have all those things god is sitting there going i have power for you i have spiritual empowerment that goes beyond our abilities both the old testament and new testament we see this and when someone is overwhelmed you have to reach out to god and say i need your wisdom i need your knowledge and i need your understanding on how to do this And in fact, James talks about this in the New Testament. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask, who gives generously to all without finding fault? I love that part. God's not going to be going, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you wisdom because of this one fault in your life. He's saying, I give generously to you the wisdom that you need. It boils down to this. Are you asking God for it? Are you asking God for it? So you see verse 10, God says, and I don't think I have this on the, on the screen here, but you, verse 10, God says, you didn't ask all these things for yourself, says to Solomon. You asked for wisdom, and you didn't ask for, for money. You didn't ask for all these other blessings, and I'm going to give those to you also. It's like a package deal for, for God for some reason for Solomon. God is wanting to bless him. And then verse 14, it says, And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. We will hear the Lord say this five different times to Solomon through chapter 9. And we're going to go through all of them. Because Solomon walk, his, his walk, his actions become an issue later. Solomon's life would have been much better if he would have followed this. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did. 
If you just follow me, things will work out much better for you. So the rest of chapter 3 is about Solomon's, uh, about how Solomon's wisdom is used and how it works practically in the palace. And then we get to verse 16 here. It says, Now two prostitutes came to, came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this, uh, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house between the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night, took my son that was at my side while I, was, while I your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that he wasn't the son that I, uh, that I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours and the living one is mine. So they argued before the king and this king said, uh, this one says, uh, my son is alive and your son is dead. While the other one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. So you have kind of two sides here going on. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought the sword to the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her, to this, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So here's the deal. You have two women. Both moms know who is lying, right? If you've ever had a child and you hold that child, you know what your child looks like, right? Unless you have twins, and then that's a whole other thing. But you know what your child looks like. So one mom knows that the other's lying. And one is telling them the truth. But the other one's accusing one of kidnapping. All of these things that the lying mother's doing are capital offenses in their kingdom, in their rules, in their law. At least four that I can count. Now, there's a certain amount of fear taking this to the king. You don't always just get an audience to the king to get rule. I mean, they have other people to do this. You've made it to the Supreme Court of Solomon's kingdom in a sense. Because he could just go, you know what, I'm tired of this, kill them all. He very well could do that. Now let's have lunch, you know what I'm saying? Especially in, 30, in verse 24 when he says, bring me a sword. I'm sure the guards looked at each other like, what? Well, I wonder who's going to die today. I mean, when the king asks for a sword, the throne room gets really quiet. Everyone's wondering which woman is going to be executed. I guess the king has figured it out. Now, as a parent of multiple kids, not me, but some of you might know this, and and my parents certainly fit this with four boys, sometimes my mom would act like she'd figured it out. She'd have no clue which kid did what. You know, in my house it was always the ghost. The ghost did it. Oh, I guess the ghost did it. 
But mom would usually, you know, she would act like she figured it out. And usually that would work because somebody would give a clue and somebody would give it up. You know what I'm saying? Give me a sword. And they're standing there and Solomon says, split the baby in two and give each woman half. I'm sure some people are looking at the king going, man, he, he's lost it. He's lost his mind. Then the real woman says, no, 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 don't, no, 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 give it to her, give it, no, spare the baby, give the baby to her. And the other woman goes, no, just cut him in half. I mean, he figured it out pretty quickly, and everybody in the room probably did too. You see, God can give you wisdom, but you have to ask for it. He will withhold things from those who do not ask, just to teach them how to ask. I do this with my son all the time. Sometimes I won't let him have something until he asks, lest he get the idea that he can just run and get something anytime he wants. Sometimes I withhold things from him because he's not of age, you know, the knives and the, and the drawers. We have certain drawers in our house that are locked up. Now, he knows how to get the magnet. He knows how to unlock it, but he also knows that he doesn't go near those drawers because he'll get in trouble. I'm there to protect him. I'm withholding something that is dangerous to him. No matter how much he really wants something sometimes, and it's not a danger to him, he didn't ask for it, so I'm not going to give him that snack. No, you can't go to the fridge for the fourth time, or the third time, or the sixteenth time. Trying to teach him how to ask. Sometimes our Heavenly Father just wants us to ask we get ourselves into a mess and and we get way down the path and we turn around and we shake our fists at god and why did you let this happen and god is like why did you go down that path i tried to stop you from going that path you decided you wanted to go down that path okay i let you go down that path should have asked me first ask 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 for wisdom save you a headache there have been times i've put myself in a certain situation and god's just sitting going out and all you had to do is ask i would have told you i would have explained it to you i would have given you a clue i would have directed you but instead you just went down that path anyway now verse 7 of chapter 4 solomon picks 12 guys and he gets the kingdom organized okay you do this you do that and and each month, one, one, these 12 guys would coordinate their area that they lived in, and, and they would supply food for the, for the kingdom, just like we pay taxes to the government to allow them in Washington, D.C. And, you know, and they were in charge of supplying the groceries to the palace. And in verse 7, it says, Solomon also had 12 district governors over all of Israel who supplied provisions for the king and the royal household. Each one had to provide supplies for one month in the year. And then you jump down to 22, and you see what kind of Costco run they really had to do here. Um, okay, that was a joke, but um, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores. Now, this is like 185 bushels. Do you understand bushels? Okay, this was a lot, okay? wasn't just a little. This was like, I need a semi-truck down at Costco to pick this up. This isn't like I took my SUV down and I stuffed it full. 185 bushels of fine flour and 60 cores, or 375 bushels of meal. 10 head of, small, uh, of stall-fed cattle, 
20 of pasture-fed cattle and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deers, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Now imagine the cost of these things right here. That was a lot of money. Now I'm sure there had to be some type of government waste here. I know it's hard to imagine in our day and age, you know, people living in the capital and the taxpayers' expenses and wasting, gov- uh, you know, wasting money. I understand that. But it says, the people of Judah and Israel were so numerous as the sand on the seashore, they ate, they drank, and they were happy. This was the best that Israel pretty much had it. Solomon was, was for the most part, a, a very peaceful king. And in fact, here's a map of, of the influence. You see the kind of the bright green there on the screen. That's kind of Israel today. It's changed a little bit. But you can see the extent of Solomon's kingdom there. That's about as all, all, all the land that they ever controlled. Now, the promised land that God gave them was much bigger than this. Solomon's influence did reach all the way down in Iran, Iraq, area, you know, all the way to the Euphrates. It did go up almost to Ru- modern-day Russia. His influence, and, and down into Egypt, and, you know, Queen of Sheba is going to come into play and all this kind of stuff. So he had influence all over, but this was the extent of the land that they controlled. It was about 10% of what God promised them. It's sad that they never claimed the rest. I mean, it really is. Uh, world history would be completely different today uh, if they had done that. Modern Israel even, uh, is even smaller today uh, than this, and it will continue to get smaller as they uh, try to get peace and, and trade land for peace. And we've kind of talking about a little bit about that on Wednesday nights. But in verse 29, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breath of understanding as uh, measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all men in the east, greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. So when you memorize something like Proverbs 3, 6, we've all heard, if you've grown up in church, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. You're, you're quoting Solomon here. You know, imagine, the, uh, you know, we only have one of Solomon's songs in the Scriptures. He wrote a thousand and five of them. We have one. He also described in verse 33 here, uh, plant life, and, and from a cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. He was recognized as the wisest man of his day. The wisest man. He was a statesman, he was a leader, he was a king, he organized Israel, and he had amazing wisdom. Kind of statesman by day, and by night he wrote poetry to his wife, you know. Uh, I mean, just, he's, he's the total package. Chicks really dig him, and we're going to see that later. Well, in chapter 5, I can't believe three weeks in, I'm already chapter 5, that's a good thing. Uh, it's a miracle, I know, but we see Solomon connect with Hiram, king of, of Tyre, and he asks Hiram's help in building a temple. 
And uh, Hiram is more than happy to help him in building this because he was very good friends with David. And he kept a great relationship. They never fought. They never argued in, in two different kingdoms. And, and uh, he had a control of what they call the cedars of Lebanon. It's old growth trees. You know, we go up into the, uh, the sequoias and we see the big sequoia trees. I mean, just massive trees. We took Brandon up there recently. I mean, he's just like in awe. I mean, he's just looking up at the trees and stuff. He's so small. It was a great juxtaposition for photos and everything. It was really cool. But these, these forests have really been decimated. Uh, when the Turks came through, modern-day Turks came through, they used them all for firewood, these huge trees, you know. But uh, anyway, it's a whole other point that doesn't matter. But Hiram helps him. And next week we're going to talk about the, tip, uh, the temple because David had this huge passion for the temple of God. And God, gave, uh, God even gave David the plans to build this temple the, to, that everybody would come to and worship God at and and so forth and and you know he probably talked to Hiram over and over and over about the temple because he had a passion about it and I think we really need to plug into the concept and a little bit of David's passion for worship of God I mean for David the temple was ultimate because it was a place for people to go connect with God because they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them they had to go connect with God. God had to come down to earth and, and, and uh, find a place. Now, there's occasions where God connected with certain people. and He certainly had a relationship, but, but not the privilege that we have today by having the Holy Spirit living in us. So we need to really connect with this passion that David has. We think of the Old Testament as so old, which it is, but at the same time, we need to have a passion about it. We call it Solomon's temple, but it's really David's vision. In 1 Chronicles 28, where it tells a little bit more about this, when David was still alive, after he crowned Solomon as king, he was sick. And in 1 Chronicles 28, David gathered all the officials, and they still listened to the old man, they still listened to the old king. And it says here, David summoned the officials, uh, all the officials of Israel, to assemble at Jerusalem. And he lists all of them there. And then verse 2, it says, King David arose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I've had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for a footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. I love this verse. It just kind of just jumps out at me. Because anyone who wants to build something ought to look at it as a footstool for God, no matter what you're going to build. It's not a monument for ourselves. It's not a monument for, for the world or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be this big, impressive thing. Now, the temple was impressive. I mean, it's worth about $1 billion. Very impressive. But David, he understood what the thing was about. It was a footstool for God. Just a place to, to rest the ark. A place of connection for God and his people. A place to come and, and talk with God. You know, not a place where we walk up and we go, wow, how many people can you fit in here? It wasn't about that. And I'm not trying to, I mean, I, I come from large churches, and, you know, and uh, my, one of my old churches just built an 8,000-seat auditorium, okay? And we're like, wow, how many people? But that's not the, the, the way they're approaching that. They're approaching it as it's just kind of a footstool for God. You know what I'm saying? It's all about how we approach it. It was for God. It was for him to kick up his feet and hang with the people, a footstool. That is it. 
So King David says in in verse 3 here, But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. My heart goes out to David here. He has done all these great things for God, even when he was young, even when he was a little kid, starting with Goliath and taking down Israel's enemy. When all the big warriors of Israel wouldn't even go out there, this little kid walks out there and kills Goliath. I mean, he's done great things for God. And all he really wanted to do was build a temple for God. But that was not the plan. Some of you will track with this. Some of you will will be lost on this one. You know, that's okay. This is not Christianity 101. But if you walked with the Lord for a while, you understand that David said, I have a great vision. And God says, that is great. Somebody else is going to take your vision and do it, not you. And David's like, well, okay. You know, I mean, what is David to say? And, and David finally comes to terms with that. He didn't argue, he didn't fuss or whatever. He understood where God was coming from. But he had this vision. And God says, I want you to be okay with that. This has got to be hard for David. But he accepted it. And in verse 6 we see, he said, He said to me, Solomon your son is the one who will build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever. If he is unswerving and carrying out my commands and the laws, as is being done at this time. So now I charge you in the sight of all of Israel and all in the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God. And I love this here. This is great here. He warns his son. We're not going to read all of it. You can go back and read it later. But he says, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God. That is great. That is awesome, right? Then verse 11, he gives his son the plans for the temple. He says, then David gave, or it says, David gave his son the plans for, for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and a place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all, the, uh, all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the course in the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms. I think David thought about this a little bit. How about you? I mean, why would God give you the plans for something, the vision for something, then tell you somebody else is going to do it? Isn't that mean of God? I mean, in our humanness, we think, well, gosh, you're, you're being so mean, God. I mean, God, come on. David even died before the temple was built. Moses dies before they entered the promised land. Sometimes God is harsh in our view. But if we broaden our mind and understand God has bigger plans than just us, we're okay with it. But you've got to get to know God. He sees things differently. This is just a footstool. But we look at it and go, man, this, I mean, the, the temple was just phenomenal. Phenomenal enough that other kingdoms wanted to come in and tear it down and get all the gold and everything that was in it. Happened twice. But at the time, you're not thinking that. You're thinking, man, the, the clock is ticking here, God. Just because God has given you the vision and the know-how doesn't mean that you're the one that's supposed to be doing it. Well, Pastor Allen, then how do you know? Well, you have to get to know God like David knows God. And then God will talk to you. 
God will, will communicate with you. God will have that relationship with you. Sometimes it will be yes. Sometimes it will be no. And Pastor Allen can't help you with that. I don't always have the answers. Sometimes I'm scratching my head going, I, I don't know. We can pray about this situation. That's all I can give you on this one. But guess what? Neither can your mom sometimes. You know, dear old mom. You always go to mom. Mom always has the answer. No, not always. You have to get to know God. The reality is, God wants us to have a great relationship with him. And then sometimes God will say no to what we think is a great idea. And we have to be okay with it. David goes on in chapter 29 and gives us huge offering to the temple. A temple that he will never see. He gave 102 metric tons of gold. I just like one ton. Can I have one ton of gold? That's all I want. And then he gave 238 tons of silver. And then he gave bronze and, and all these other things. David leads by example, and everyone followed in Israel. Everybody came together, all the leadership gave, and the people rejoiced because they were offering willingly to the Lord. And David says in 1 Chronicles 29.10, he says, Praise be to God, or praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. David understood what he had was not his It was God's. And sometimes God wants us to use it here. Sometimes God wants us to use it there. Sometimes it's to help somebody out that we don't even know. Sometimes it's God puts impression on you. We need to help a family member or a friend. Sometimes it's to give to the church. That is between you and God. But you have to know where it comes from. God. And that's what David understood. David taught Israel in his dying breath about what was God's and what was theirs. Verse 14, it says, But who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are all aliens and strangers in your sight, as well all of our, as well as our, as well as were all of our forefathers. Our days on earth are like, the sh- like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all the abundance that we have, uh, we, we have provided for the building, your temple... Uh, let me start over. O Lord, our God, as for all of this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and it all belongs to you. I know, my God that you will test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with an honest intent. And now I have seen with with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. This is what David had. He had a great and wonderful vision that passed beyond his lifetime. It was God's vision. It wasn't necessarily his vision. And David had to get comfortable with that. And praise the Lord for it. Because he used 
David in such a way. We have to understand God can use us in such a fashion. God can use you and me to, you know, to change this world if we allow him to. If we start to see the big picture and test the things with God. God, this is my plan. This is what I want to do. Weigh my desires and tell me what is right and what is wrong. Direct me on that path. Because I've always said this. I, I, you know, some people get this idea of, well, God only has one path for me, and if I get off that path, I'm done. God only has one person that I'm supposed to marry. God only has one this, one that, one that. No, 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 I don't think so. When Lisa and I moved to, uh, when she graduated with her master's degree in Nebraska, we were kind of going, okay, Lord, where do you want us? She could go back down to Houston and work for NASA, or we could go to California. And we're like, we were really struggling with that. And we really felt God says, what do you want to do? You want to go to California? I'll do this with you. You want to go back to Texas and Houston? I'll do this with you. I'm okay with either way. What do you want to do? Sometimes he gives us those desires and says, you choose. And other times he says, no, what are you doing? Don't do that. I need you to do this. We need to be on the path of God. And the only way we know that path is by having a relationship with him where we ask him. And it goes back to ask, ask, ask. And unfortunately, we tell, tell, tell. You know, we're like the four-year-old tattletale, you know, with our friends and stuff, instead of asking. Because God wants to use us in a mighty way. It didn't start with you. It won't finish with you. And that's what makes it God. It's God's plan. Solomon couldn't have had a better start. I wish Solomon stayed on this path, just like I wish we all stay on that path. When we finally get on that path, we, we, we take an exit we shouldn't take. Solomon had a great path to stay on, and I wish he would have stayed on that path. And we'll get to all those things. But this is a wonderful start. If you want to start anew in your relationship with God, ask him. Ask him. And get on the right path, and then go from there. And then continually come back and ask him. Continually. Well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much as we go toward you, as we look at our own lives, as, as we kind of figure out where, where we should be and what path we should be on, that we come to you and we ask, that we not ignore you in our life, that we not just accept you and know we're going to heaven, and then that's it, and we don't really develop that relationship. We ask you to develop that relationship with us. And sometimes you have to force us into that, And sometimes we freely go into that. But we do pray that you are in the middle of our lives. In your name, amen.